Open your Bibles up to the book of Genesis. If you have one of our Bibles, it's on page one. If you have your own Bible, it's probably on page one. Okay? Um, Normally, we take, uh, our routine is to take a book of the Bible and to work our way through it uh, over a series of weeks, going through it verse by verse. We did that with Titus most recently. And, uh, and so that we can get a better understanding of what the whole book is about, right? We don't ever want to just take a passage out of context and, and make it say what we want it to say. We want to hear what, what the original author was saying to the original audience and, and then how that actually affects us uh, uh, today so that we can learn from uh, the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. And, and so that's one of the reasons that we go through uh, books of the Bible, uh, whole books at a time. And, uh, but every once in a while, it's good for us because sometimes when we get so uh, buried into the, the, the trees in the forest, so to speak, we forget that there's a big forest around us. And, uh, and sometimes it's helpful for us to sort of lift our heads and just kind of remember uh, what the big story is. Because this, the whole of Scripture is telling us a, a, a big story, the bigger picture that we need to keep in mind while maintaining the specific message of each uh, book and, and what it's communicating. Because each book does have a message, but it contributes to the overall message. And so for the next five weeks, we're going to take a quick trip through the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, okay? Commonly referred to as the Pentateuch, which is a fancy Greek word for five books. Pretty, pretty fancy, right? The Hebrew term for it is the Torah. And so in Judaism, that's what they would call it. And, and Torah means teaching or instruction. It's also referred to as the law or the book of Moses because in ancient manuscripts, they didn't have like a bound Bible. They had scrolls, right? And, the, and Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the Torah, these first five books, they were written together on one scroll to tell one story. And if you've read through them, you'll see that Genesis ends and it leaves you set up for Exodus. And Exodus ends and it leaves you set up for Leviticus and so on. That's because they flow together. They, they tell one narrative, one story that's written mostly by Moses. And, and this story was most likely uh, meant to be read out loud to the children of Israel. Think with me as they are parked just on the other side of the promised land, looking into Canaan, preparing to go in and, and see the promise that God has promised to them all the way back through these books and to remind them not to forget the God who redeemed them and made them his own. But the Pentateuch isn't just a single story in itself. Yes, it does tell a story, but these five books are the beginning of, of this much larger story that's contained in the entire Bible. And as, as people that are ourselves chosen and redeemed by God through Christ, it's important for us to understand this story that the whole Bible tells because... It's nonfiction. It's, it's not made up. This is reality. This is history. These things actually happened. It's how the living God has chosen to reveal himself to us. And that makes each and every single book of the Bible relevant and important to us if we truly want to know and love and obey God. And so here's our goal as a body of believers is to work our way through every single book in, in the Bible. And then do it all over again, and again, and again, and again, as long as we're here, so that we never forget the God who chose us and redeemed us as we prepare 
You see, we're sitting on the precipice of the promise, right? And so as we prepare for the eternal promise, it's helpful for us to look back at the history of God bringing a people out and redeeming them for himself and being reminded of how he's done that for us in Christ. The very real story that Scripture tells us helps us understand the present world in which we live. It actually helps us make sense of the chaos here, and it helps us remember God as we prepare to enter this promised eternity that he secured for us through Christ and his Spirit. The Old Testament prepares us for Christ. The New Testament reveals Christ to us and then readies us for his return. Everything points us to Jesus and we are living in the continual unfolding of this story. Now, listen, this is it right here, okay? It has two covers, which means there's nothing to be added and nothing to be taken away from it. But it's already written, but that doesn't mean it's already fully experienced, right? And so we live right now currently in this story. Not in the Old Testament part, but in the New Testament part. And these five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they lay this foundational plot of God's grand story of redemption of sinful people and rebellious people through his son, Jesus Christ. And so over the next five weeks, we need to think about it this way, okay? We're going to do like a flyover in an airplane. And we're going to see how these things, these these foundational plot line or this foundational plot line gets put together. We're going to get a better understanding of the major themes that these five books introduce and get developed through the rest of the Bible. When we're done with this series, then we're going to get out of the airplane, we're going to get into the car, and we're going to take a drive, extended drive through Genesis, so that we can come back and see and experience the ups and downs and the twists and turns in the story. But for today... And for the following four Sundays, we're up 35,000 feet, hopefully sitting in a window seat, and looking over a vast landscape, pointing out the major, major landmarks that we see as we travel from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Now, normally, I do like to read the whole passage before I preach through it, but Genesis is 50 chapters long, and you guys already moaned about Psalm 119. So... Uh, I want to pray, and then we'll just jump in. So will you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray according to it from Psalm 119.18 that you would open our eyes and help us see wonderful things in your law. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, maybe you're more familiar with the band Genesis than you are with the book of Genesis. Okay? Uh, listen, I was a Genesis fan. Um, but, but chances are, even if you can hum along with several of, uh, of Phil Collins' songs, you can also probably recognize several of the stories that are contained within this book, right? The major stories. So just about everyone, whether you uh, have, have even opened a Bible or not, is at least somewhat familiar with Adam and Eve, probably familiar with Noah and the ark, right? The flood, which is some, we've turned it into really creepy bedtime story. I'm like, hey... Here's all the, everybody dies, sweet dreams. But if you, if you went to Sunday school as a kid, 
you probably still know at least a couple of the, so- uh, of the lines to the song, Father Abraham had many sons. Anybody? Okay, there's a few. Uh-huh. Now sing, uh, uh, no, never mind. I was going to shout out a Phil Collins song. But, um, or, or maybe you remember like the flannel graph depiction of like the Tower of Babel, right? So, but, but here's what we need to understand. Like in and of themselves, these are memorable stories, but, but together they paint a much more beautiful picture. They're not just Sunday school stories. They're real people and real events that took place in our real world. And together, along with the rest of the people and events in Genesis that we may not know as well, these form the foundation, the firm foundation, like we sang about, for the history of salvation. This is a grand story. The word Genesis means beginning, and which makes it an, a very fitting title for the first book of the Bible, right? But it's also fitting because in this book, we're going to see a lot of beginnings. And these beginnings, remember as we're taking a flyover, these beginnings are going to be our landmarks to look for as we work our way through Genesis this morning. Now the book is broken up into two main sections, chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through 50. That first section, chapters 1 through 11, covers God's relationship with all humanity through the creation of the world, the flood and the Tower of Babel. Those are the three major events. Major people that show up in this first section are Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and Noah. The second section, chapters 12 through 50, covers God's relationship with one family. And the hinge point between these two sections of the book is God's covenant with Abraham in chapter 12. Along with that covenant, this section, the second section covers other major events like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham sacrificing Isaac, Jacob wrestling with God, and Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat, right? Listen, that's like one line in the story, and they made a giant play out of it. I don't know how that worked. But Joseph's brother selling him into slavery in Egypt. Now, the major people, we've, we've just sort of talked about them, but this section focuses on our Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who's later renamed Israel, and his 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. So we see a people forming in Genesis. And now we're not going to cover all these events. We're not going to cover all these people in detail today because we're flying over. But since this book is the beginning, I think it's fitting at least or helpful for us to start at the beginning. Okay? And the first thing we're going to see this morning, the first beginning that we're going to see is the beginning of God's revelation about himself. Look at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, it's vital from the beginning for us to know and understand that God has no beginning, right? If we don't get this, none of the rest of anything else that we read in Scripture will make sense. God has no beginning. He always was, he always is, and he always will be. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were born, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world from eternity to eternity, you are God. 
The first beginning is the beginning of God's revelation about himself, and what he reveals is that he has no beginning. And as the eternal one, God not only knows the difference between good and evil, but he actually determines what is good and what is evil. And we see the distinctions that he makes in the second beginning, the beginning of the world. See, God took what was formless and empty and he covered it and covered in darkness and he brought order to the chaos. He created light and he separated the light from darkness and the light was good, right? And then he formed an expanse and separated the waters and he called the expanse sky and he made dry land appear and separated the dry land from the sea and God saw that it was good, right? And then he made the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, fruits of, uh, fruit trees of every kind and they were what? good. And after he formed the heavens and the earth in the first three days, then he filled the heavens and the earth in the next three days. He made the sun and the moon and the stars and he put them in the sky to serve as signs for seasons and days and years and to provide light on the earth. And God said these were good. He made every creature according to its kind to live in the sky and in the seas. And God saw that this was good. And he blessed them and he told them to be fruitful and multiply. And then he made every creature according to its kind on the land. And God saw that this was also good, right? And then it's on the sixth day, after God created everything else, that we see another beginning. It's the beginning of God's special creation. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, 27. Then God said... Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Why are human beings God's special creation out of all that he's made? When he makes everything else, He creates it according to its kind. But God created man in his own image. God created man according to his own likeness. Out of all that God had made, he chose man and woman to be like him and to know him and to love him and to worship him. And it's in this relationship with his special creation that we see another beginning, the beginning of God's special blessing. Look at verse 28. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God blessed the animals and he told them to be fruitful and multiply. But here, he blessed Adam and Eve and he told them to be fruitful and multiply as well. Right? So what's the difference? The blessing that he gave to them, he didn't give to animals. It's this, fill the earth. Subdue it, rule over it, over the other creatures. See, God chose the man and the woman to be his representatives to the rest of creation, governing in goodness on his behalf and his delegated authority and displaying the goodness of his character and his glory to all that he's made. And after God created Adam and Eve, he gave them and gave them his special blessing. God saw that all he had made. And he said, this is very good. 
And this is where we see another beginning, the beginning of rest. On the seventh day, God rested from all his work, and he blessed the seventh day, not only declaring it good, but declaring it holy, set apart from everything else. And for a while, everything's good, right? Perfect harmony for like a page. And then we get to Genesis 3, and we see another beginning that's not so fun. It's the beginning of sin. And it's here that we're introduced to the serpent, a.k.a. Satan, who is described as, in this context, the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And with the serpent came the beginning of deception. When he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And even though Eve knew that God said that they could eat from any tree they wanted except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden, we see the beginning of doubt forming her heart when the serpent told her that God was lying. You won't die. You won't die. And tried to convince, <clears throat> excuse me, convince her that God was withholding something from her. And that led to the beginning of temptation to disregard God's definition of what is good and what is evil, to disregard God's word, to disregard God's good boundaries. And with the beginning of temptation became the beginning, or came the beginning of, of rebellion, that the people that God created in his own image decided to question God's definition of good and evil and to come up with their own. Genesis 3, 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. She's creating all her own categories here. And so she took some of its fruit and she ate it. And so she also gave some to her husband who was with her. He's like, yeah, that sounds good. And he ate it. They did not believe what God had said. And they rebelled against his command. And they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They sinned against their good God. And their eyes were opened. And they both truly knew the difference now between good and evil. Because they both committed an evil act against their infinitely good God. And now we see another beginning. And it's not a good one either. It's the beginning of shame. And they both knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And they hid from the Lord for the first time. Can you imagine that? We've heard this story so many times, right? This really happened. Now we see another beginning. The beginning of sin's consequences. You see, God, because he has no end and no beginning, because he's all eternal, before the mountains were born, he was and is and is to come, he knows all things. The fancy word for that is omnipotent. There's nothing God needs to learn. And yet, what does he do after they hide from him? He comes and he asks Adam a series of questions as an act of grace. God already knows the answers. But he says, Adam, where are you? 
Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? But then when Adam opens his mouth to answer the questions, we see another beginning. And listen, these beginnings are not good. It's the beginning of blame. Sin distorts our understanding of what's good and what's evil, and Adam decided that it would be good for him to pass the buck instead of taking responsibility for his own actions. Who do you blame first? He had the audacity to blame God. It was that woman that you gave me, right? And then he blamed Eve for giving him the fruit, and then Eve blamed the serpent for deceiving her, and then we see the beginning now of the broken relationships between man and woman between people and God as a result of sin. And in God's response, we see the beginning of the curse. God cursed the serpent to crawl on the ground on his belly, and God promised to put hostility between the seed of the woman and the serpent, and the seed of the serpent, the offspring of both. God cursed the woman with intense, uh, intensified labor pains, and, and he said she would work against her husband's authority, and her husband would abuse his authority. Then God cursed the ground because of the man's disobedience, and instead of producing abundant fruit that was good, the ground would produce thorns and thistles, which, by the way, ended up on Christ's head as he reversed the curse. God cursed the man to eat from the ground by means of painful labor, and with the man's curse comes the beginning of death. God tells Adam, you will eat by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. With these curses, we see the beginning of God's judgment against sin. This is God's good response to what is evil. And because God in his goodness is also gracious and merciful, in these curses, we also see finally another good beginning, the beginning of hope. I don't know if you noticed, but I left something out when I talked about him cursing the serpent. When he promised to put hostility between the serpent and the woman, he also promised to put hostility between her offspring and the serpent's offspring. And in that, he promised that there would be one who would come from the woman's family line who would strike the serpent's head, and the serpent would also strike his heel. In the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, in the midst of despair and loss of all that's good, as God was pronouncing judgment and curses on those who rebelled against him, he preached the gospel to his people. Things, things would not be ruined forever. God would restore what they had broken. The serpent would be defeated. The curse would be lifted. And now the very ones who did not believe what God had said about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil are the ones through whom God promised to defeat evil and restore all that good. Is that not grace? But as we read that, we're left to say, will they believe what God has said this time? As God banished them from the garden and sent them into the wilderness, it seems like, it seems like the hope that was introduced there is going to be short-lived, especially when you read the rest of Genesis chapter 4 through 11. 
And here we see a new beginning. It's the beginning of evil's rapid downward spiral. Chapter 4, Cain killed Abel, and we see the beginning of murder. And then Cain's great-great-great-grandson, Lamech, grew up, and he took two wives for himself, and we see the, the beginning of polygamy. We're seeing the multiplication of sin here. Lamech was as treacherous, was actually more treacherous than Cain, and a violent man, and he was proud of it. In his eyes, he did evil and called it good. The evil in the world continued to multiply so that every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. And when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination, every desire, every, every, everything that the human mind wanted to do was wickedness, nothing but evil all the time, the Lord was deeply grieved and he decided to wipe mankind and every living creature off the face of the earth by flooding the whole world. The, the world started dark and empty. Looks like it's going to go back to that. But God would preserve one man and his family, Noah. And two of every kind of animal, one male and one female, so that they would be saved from judgment and, and could re, re, repopulate the earth. Now, if you're the children of Israel, looking out at the promised land, hearing the recounting of this story... You might think maybe Noah is the promised offspring of Eve who will crush the serpent's head and restore all things. After all, Noah did find favor with the Lord, right? After the flood, God made a covenant with Noah, promised never again to curse the ground or destroy all living creatures with another flood. And God blessed Noah and his family, and he gave them the same mandate that he gave to Adam and Eve. He reinstated this, this creation mandate to be fruitful and to multiply. And it seemed as though humanity was getting a new beginning, this, this chance to start over. But Noah, Noah, so close. He was born with a sin nature just like everyone else who came after Adam and Eve. And Noah sinned in a garden just like his ancestors did. You see, he planted a vineyard and then he got drunk off the wine and he ended up naked and ashamed just like his ancestors did. And suddenly we realize that not much has changed after all this time has passed since Adam and Eve. Even after the flood, sin spread rapidly again and in chapter 11, this downward spiral of evil culminated in an attempt by the people of the world to build this tower that spiraled upward to heaven not so that they could worship the God who made them, but so that they could come up and, and take his place and exalt themselves over him. And here we see the beginning of Babylon, the Tower of Babel. It's in Babylon. Babylon is a real nation, but it also becomes a symbol all throughout Scripture of the rebellious earthly kingdoms that set themselves up in opposition to God and his people. And once again, it feels like hope is just fading fast. Then we get to chapter 12, and we see the beginning of redemption. You can turn there if you want. The rest of the book of Genesis focuses on one family. Abram, whose name was later changed to Abraham. Abraham's son Isaac. Isaac's son Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel. And then Jacob's 12 sons, but in particular, uh, son number 11, Joseph. Chapter 12 begins with God calling Abraham and making a covenant with him. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, 
also known as Abraham later, go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And God's covenant with Abraham, he revealed how he would fulfill the promise of hope that he made in the Garden of Eden. Out of all of Eve's offspring that had grown out through Noah back and spread out all over the world, and then came together and tried to get God out of the way, and then God spread them back out. Out of all of Eve's offspring, God planned to rescue and bless rebellious people from every nation through the line of Abraham by giving him land and making him into a great nation that draws all these other nations in and points them back to the God who created them. Now, whereas Adam and Eve did not believe what God had said in the garden about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 15 restates the covenant with Abraham, but it also tells us that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And here we see the beginning of faith. Righteousness by faith and not by works. And the rest of Genesis drives this point home because unfortunately Abraham and his family turn out to be just as dysfunctional as everybody else in the first 11 chapters. Abraham betrayed his wife Sarah twice, said she was his sister so he wouldn't get uh, killed by kings in lands that he was in to protect his own life. Sarah told Abraham to sleep with her servant Hagar because she was getting impatient, waiting for God's uh, uh, fulfillment of his covenant promise to Abraham. Isaac followed in Abraham's footsteps, betrayed his wife Sarah, said she was his sister to protect his own life. Jacob tricked his brother Esau into selling him his birthright. And then, just you know, because he is who he is, he decided that he was going to deceive his blind dad And, and trick him into giving him the blessing instead of Esau. He stole Esau's blessing. Jacob's sons were jealous of their brother Joseph, and they wanted to kill him. But instead, they decided to sell him into slavery in Egypt. This family is hardly worthy of being chosen to carry out God's plan of redemption and blessing to the rest of the world, right? Right? But that's the point. That's the point. The beginning of sin, we need to understand this. The beginning of sin did not put an end to the sovereignty of our beginningless God. It did not put an end to God's desire or ability to bless the people that he created in his image because that blessing is, praise God, not dependent upon humanity's worthiness to receive it. It's dependent upon God's worthiness to give it. In spite of Adam and Eve's rebellion, God made a promise of faithfulness to them. In spite of Noah's drunkenness, God made a promise of faithfulness to him. In spite of Abraham's and Isaac's and Jacob's deceitfulness and selfishness, God made a promise of faithfulness to them. From the very beginning, God has been faithful to preserve what is good in spite of what is evil. And that's because God made a covenant with himself before the beginning 2 Timothy 1.9 
says, He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Before the triune God brought about creation, he had already determined the course for redemption. The Father decreed it. The Son would carry it out in the power of the Spirit. The all-knowing God already knew that humanity would fail, and so before everything and anything came into being, God had already sovereignly, sovereignly determined the who, the what, the when, the why, the where, and the how across all of time and space so that he could make his faithful love known to an undeserving people. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die just uh, for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not dependent upon us. If God has not been in control from before the very beginning, then he can't guarantee our salvation in Jesus. Think about all that God needed to orchestrate over thousands of years so that Christ would come at just the right time. Listen, I can't even remember what's on my Google calendar for this week. At the end of Genesis, Joseph became second in command to Pharaoh after his brothers had sold him into slavery in Egypt. And when his brothers came to him for food, when a terrible famine came across the land, which anytime you see famine, especially in the Old Testament, it's a sign of God's judgment. When they came to him for food, he had the opportunity to use his power for revenge, to take out on them all of the suffering that they had caused him. But what did he do? Instead, he brought his whole family to Egypt to live with him in the land of Goshen, that he, and he took care of them. Why? Genesis 50, verse 19 and 20, which really summarizes the whole book. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid, because they were. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result the survival of many people. Your translation might say the saving of many lives. Only a God who's sovereign can take evil and work it for good in order to save many people. And that's exactly what he did with his son Jesus Christ. On the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter spoke to the Jewish crowd and said this in Acts chapter 2. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross. And kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. God used the most evil act 
committed by lawless men to bring about the greatest good for all mankind. The only truly innocent man who ever lived was condemned and executed as a criminal on a cross by wicked men who said this is good. And yet this was according to God's sovereign plan in order to reconcile guilty people to himself through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. Have you been reconciled to God through his son? Salvation comes by faith in Christ and not by works of our own. We can't do anything to gain what God freely gives. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and so too we are to believe God and then it's credited to us as righteousness. Here's what we believe. We believe that God determines what is good and what is evil. And he says that we are guilty because we've committed evil sin and rebellion against him. We also believe that he fulfilled his promise of hope by sending his son to live the life of obedience that we should have lived, then to die on the cross in our place and to pay the penalty for our disobedience and to rise from the grave on the third day to set us free from the power of sin and death and to give us eternal life. Anybody who believes God in this way is given a new beginning. In Christ, we're new creations. The old is gone and the new has come. So do you believe what God has said? If not, why not? Why not trust him? Why not be reconciled? Why not see the grace that he's given? If you've trusted in Christ for your salvation, let the book of Genesis remind you of God's faithfulness to you from the very beginning from before you were even born. When I think about my downward spiral of failures as a husband and a father and a pastor, Genesis does my heart good. It's good for me to be reminded of God's goodness to me even in my worst moments. Think about your own patterns of failure. How has God worked those things for your good and brought about blessing to you in spite of what you really deserve? How has God remained faithful to you even when you've been unfaithful to him? That, those, those would be great questions for you to meditate on this week. I think they'll lead to thankfulness. How about God's sovereignty in the circumstances in your life? If he controlled all the people, all the events, all the weather, Everything in the, in the world, in the course of human history, across all of time and space, so that Jesus Christ would come at just the right time. So that they wouldn't take his life until he was ready to, to lay it down. So that the grave couldn't keep him. If God has that kind of control, and he works that for our good, how does it help you trust him right now in the things that feel like they're out of your control? What's causing you anxiety or fear that you need to entrust to the one who takes what others plan as evil and works it for good? Genesis ends with Joseph in a coffin in Egypt. The curse of death from the garden has caught up to him, and the end of the book of beginnings leaves God's people with unanswered questions. Egypt is not the promised land, right? Canaan is. So how will God get his people there? When will God get his people there? Will God get his people there? 
But God has all the answers because he planned the whole thing from before the beginning. And the world's most powerful nation at the time, Egypt, the stage is set for God to display his power to save his people for his glory. And that's what we'll get into when we get into Exodus next week. See, the book of Genesis provides us with a a firm foundation for our faith in a sovereign God who is good. It provides us with gracious reminders of God's rich blessings to undeserving people. From the beginning, God's story of redemption points us directly to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true and greater Adam. When he was tempted, he remained obedient and sinless where Adam failed and disobeyed. Jesus is greater than Noah. He's the ark of our salvation. He died on the cross to rescue us from the flood of God's holy wrath against us because of our sin. Jesus is the promised offspring of the woman who came to crush the serpent's head and lift the curse, defeating Satan, sin, and death once and for all. And Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham through whom all the peoples of the earth will be blessed He says, anyone who comes to me, I will not turn away. Jesus is in the beginning because Jesus is the beginning. And as those who have our new beginning in him, I pray that when we read the book of Genesis from now on, it leads us to worship our Savior without end. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that all of it points us to your son, the living word. We pray, God, that you would help us as we read it, Genesis through Revelation, to understand what's there, how you worked through those original writers, but how you, through your Holy Spirit, lead us to Christ. May he be glorified. And we be renewed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.